Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to The Sharp Way with Larry Sharp. I'm so happy you joined me this evening. Another Monday evening, we are talking about something that um, is often difficult to chat about. We're talking tonight about race. Yes, often people don't want to have that conversation. It can be touchy, can be difficult, but the reality of it is, if we don't have that conversation, nothing is going to get better. We have to have that conversation, that chat back and forth. And if you want to join the program to talk to me about that, you can. It is so super easy. All you've got to do is pick up the phone and call 573-427-5463. You can chat with me about anything you like. Now, to be forward, a lot of the show maybe if you guys don't jump in as much, it might be about black and white race. It could be because that's basically what I understand, mostly because of my own personal experience and background. But I'm happy to take on any question, comment, back and forth, regardless whether that's Hispanic, religious, Jewish, ethnic, uh, Asian, whatever the case may be. I'm happy to have those conversations because, man, someone has to. So the first thing I'm going to bring up is an interesting thing that happened between myself and my wife. My wife is actually from Greece. So different culture, background than myself, even though we actually met in high school. Interesting story. I'll tell you for another time. But where I live in Queens, there is literally a deli across the street. And for those of you who live in New York City, you know that very often there are things you want literally across the street. So one day, many years ago, my wife and I were married at the time. I'm going to go across the street. She's like, Larry, go across the street and get something for me, whatever the thing was. And I say, sure, absolutely. And she gives me some money. And I say, wait, I have to get my wallet. She says, no, no, I've given you money. I say, I know I have to get my wallet. And she doesn't understand why. She's like, why do you get your wallet? And I realized something she didn't get. And that was, I always have my wallet on me, no matter what, whenever I leave the house. No matter what, I always have my wallet on me when I leave the house. Why? I was taught as a young boy by my father that you must always have ID on you no matter what, under any and all circumstances. Because if you don't, and the cops stop you, you're going downtown. You're getting arrested. That's it. You're going to fit a description. They're going to harass you. You're in trouble. So you've always got to have ID on you. And be forward, my father was in law enforcement, and he told me that. And it's something that my wife didn't understand at all. When I brought this up to other people who aren't people of color, white people in, in America, many of them are surprised to hear that. This is not a thing that you have to deal with or understand. And what's funny is years ago, and I'm giving my age away, I grew up in the 70s, and there was a TV show, those of you who are too young, you may not know, there was a TV show called Good Times in the 70s. I think it actually went maybe into the early 80s. I'm not sure if it was canceled uh, prior to the early 80s, but I think it, it might have gone to early 80s. But show uh, Good Times had this exact issue on the show. Now, if you're of my age or so and you're black, you probably watch Good Times. If you're white, you may have also. It was very popular. So it's possible you watched it even if you were white. But either way, in that show, they talk about the idea of a fitting description. And all of a sudden, at one point, a kid goes out, gets arrested, and now they think he's a bad guy because he was in the wrong place, wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time is a big issue that you deal with or have been taught, hopefully, to deal with. If you're a young black male, it's just that many people don't really get or understand. Now, the funny part about this is when I was a, a young boy, when I was a kid, I grew up in the South Bronx as a kid. And when I was in, in the South Bronx as a kid, most of my friends, 
were not white. Very few were white. There was like the white kid. I mean, that's how it was. It was very few. Most of my friends were either black or Hispanic. Um, I grew up in the South Bronx in the 70s, and that's kind of how it was. But then I moved out to Long Island when I was about 11, so I moved to Long Island. All of a sudden, now I'm moving in as late elementary school, junior high school, and high school, and the reverse is true. All of a sudden, most of my friends are white, and I'm the black kid. Everything changed. It's a big difference for me to understand how things changed. And to be forward, as I left what I called the ghetto back then, now we call it the hood. I guess I'm too old, right? Now we call it the hood. When I left the hood, or the ghetto as I called it, when I left that, it really made me understand the difference in race. It's going to sound silly, but as a kid, that where I was, and those of you who made it to the Bronx, we know this, there used to be a movie theater in the South Bronx called The Earl. It was an old movie theater from the 70s, and it was right on 131st Street. Now it's a store or something, but it used to be a movie theater. And back in the day, they used to play a lot of older movies, right? They, play, they would play movies like um, movies from, from – they put actual movies from China, the karate kung fu flicks. They play Japanese uh, uh, flicks like Godzilla and Sonny Chiba and stuff like that and, and the old kung fu flicks. They pl- play those also. And a bunch of, of, of what now we would call black exploitation films like Blackula and stuff like that people will laugh and joke about. But these were actually in the theaters when I was a kid and we'd watch them. I didn't understand as a youngster, eight, nine years old, seven years old, I didn't understand really what a minority was. As a youngster, the minority was white people. So I thought maybe they were a minority. I had no idea. I didn't understand this. Then I move out to Long Island and I get it clearly. Wow, this is different. This was something that I think was interesting for me to understand and to feel. In addition... My own home was biracial. My mother was a German immigrant. My father was black, born and raised in uh, New York City. So a, a whole different world for me to understand in race. And when I went out to uh, Long Island, I remember going to the school district. And I go to the school district. And as I go in, my father says you know, to the principal or vice principal, whoever the administrator was, Hey, my kid, Larry Sharp, he's smart. You got to put him in the highest grade. He tests well and all these things, of course, any father, proud father would say about his son. And the first the administrator says is, yeah, we're going to put him in a lower grade and we're going to see if he can work his way up. And my father says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. He's smart. He's, he's, you can test him and he's smart. And the administrator says, no, no, no. You know, city kids don't really do that well out here. That was the first time I understood what a euphemism was. City kid meant kids who weren't white. I didn't know that, but I learned that at about 11 years old. So all of a sudden, nothing would put me in a lower grade. My father, being savvy, immediately said, nope, test him now. And they tested me there. I tested well, and I went into a higher grade. But the funny part is, going to the higher grade, I mean, the higher uh, class, I was the only black guy there. It was just me. It was a, it was a, a girl and me. And that was it. Big difference for me understanding how that would work and and what people have to deal with in this in this world a changing world for me which i got to say i'm lucky that i was able to do that i'm very happy i was able to do that because i got to experience something a lot of people didn't experience or don't experience growing up both in the city in a predominantly black and hispanic world and then also growing up 
in the suburbs, for those who don't know, Long Island is a suburb of New York City, growing out in the suburbs in a predominantly white neighborhood. It really allowed me to have, I think, uh, a special relationship with race and kind of understanding both in my world and dating women who were girls at the time, I guess, when I was a kid and, and girl, women as I got older, dating women who were of different races, uh, different ethnic backgrounds and dealing with how they would look at me in that same world. It was a whole different issue. For those of you who, who've lived basically in a similar world where most of the people were of your race, of your ethnic background, you may or may not have, have experienced that. Or maybe you have. Why did I tell this story? Did I want you to feel sorry or feel bad or anything like that? No. The name of this show was Empathy. And what I actually would hope that anyone would understand is that it isn't about being black or being white. It isn't about your race even. It's about in any given environment being the other. That other might mean you're the only Christian among Jews. It might mean you're the only black person among white people. It might be the only Asian kid among Hispanics. Insert thing here. Whenever you are the other, there's some problem or some issue or some concern. And when that happens, I don't need you to feel sorry. I just need you to have some empathy to go, oh, yes, it's different for that person because that person is the other. That person is not the same as all the rest of us in this social environment, whatever the environment is. You should have some empathy for them and kind of understand that things are different. That's it. You don't have to feel bad. You don't even have to get it. There was a South Park episode um, was several years ago. And if you guys remember the South Park episode, it's a, it's a, a joke where one of the, the, the parents, Randy, is on Wheel of Fortune. And he's on Wheel of Fortune. And the clue is, if not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase it, people who bother you or something like that, people who bother you. And the clue is an N space G-G-E-R-S. And so what does Randy say? He goes, uh, yes, he yells the N-word. Of course he does. Yes, he does. He yells the N-word. And they go, well, no, the answer was actually naggers, people who bother you. They nag you, naggers. And they're like, oh, my God, he now has said the N-word. And now he's said the N-word publicly, and he is now the bad guy. They all can't say him, and they hate him, and they're all mad at him. And, of course, there's one black kid in the school, right? In the school, kid, he's upset with uh, the, the other kid in, in South Park, and they're upset, and they're angry, and they're mad at each other. And... Randy's son goes to him and goes, no, 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 it's okay. He apologized. It's fine now. Well, my father's not a racist. It's fine now. And the black kid's name on, on South Park, amazingly, of course, is Token. Of course, it's his name. So that's his name on South Park. And he says, no, you don't get it. You don't get it. It's not okay. And then he goes to uh, the, the kid's dad goes to Jesse Jackson and apologizes and literally kisses his butt, literally, and says, see, it's okay. And he goes, no, it isn't. And at the end of the episode, at the end of the episode, the kid, Stan, goes to Token and says, you know, Token, I don't get it. And Token's like, yes, yes, you don't get it. It's okay. I, that's good. Thank you. You get it. You don't get it. Yes, we don't have to get it. We don't have to make it right. I remember this is something it's, it's going to sound totally insanely stupid. When I was a, a little kid in the Bronx, for those of you who don't know about the Bronx, back in the, back in the 70s, 
it was still there was still a bit of a Jewish neighborhood there, right? There was a, it was very Jewish in the fifties and sixties. By the time I was growing up, there were very few Jews remaining in there, but there were some. Most of them were older people who were still in the same old apartments. Most of the younger Jewish community had already left, but there were some of the older Jews who were there. Actually, they're the ones who uh, taught me how to play chess in the park across the street from where I grew up. So I remember there was some kind of a story or celebration or memorial regarding the Holocaust. And as a kid, I'd learned about it in school, but didn't really know much about it. I just knew it was many years ago to me. It was 30 years ago. Oh, my God. And I said, oh, um, how long do you guys have to remember that? As a little kid saying that, I didn't understand that 30 years was forever for me. That was like a million years. Now, if you're Jewish, of course the Holocaust matters to you. Of, of, of course. And what that showed is that someone like me who isn't Jewish, I'm not going to get it. I can't get it. I can understand intellectually, right? I can understand intellectually that that would bother you if you're Jewish. I get that intellectually, but I didn't grow up in a Jewish household. I don't have relatives who went through that. I haven't dealt with that emotionally, physically around me, my family, my background, my heritage. I don't have that. So I can say I can't get it. And that's okay. I'm not supposed to. But just because you don't get it, doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. And there's the most important piece. Too often, if we can't get a I understand or I get it, we get angry and we become nasty or mean. And this isn't the First Amendment piece. You can be a jerk if you want to, absolutely. I'm just saying you shouldn't. You don't have to be a jerk. So why would you? You don't have to be a jerk. So don't be one. The point is, you don't have to get it to have a conversation. You don't have to fix things or make things better. It's not required. All it's required is to go, yeah, that person is the other. That person will feel differently and feel bad. I have some empathy. And that's what we have to do. The example I will bring up often is a person I think is a hero of mine. That's Daryl Davis. For those of you who don't know, Daryl Davis is a musician. <laughs> He's a brother like me who goes around and has spent many times talking to members of the Klan. KKK, talking to them and chatting with them about how, you know, how we can make things better. And he's actually befriended many of them. And he keeps their hoods as, as trophies. Not by yelling at them. Not by trying to make them feel sorry for him. Not by him being angry at them. But by just having a conversation. By just talking with them. And understanding that we're just humans. We have that conversation, things will change. Now, I bring this up because very often there's a, a thing I keep hearing, two separate things I keep hearing, which is kind of a, almost a backlash from this. And one of them is the concept of white privilege. And the other one is the concept of almost like a, a white self-hatred. There's actually people talking about this. I see it often. There's actually a, uh, there's a Netflix special, I think, by Chelsea Handler, if I'm not mistaken. She talks about her hello, white privilege or something like that. It's the idea that she's, she's trying to understand and check her white privilege and understand how bad she feels about being white or something like that. And I want to be clear. You really shouldn't be ashamed to be white. And I know there are people out there who, who for some reason are, and you really should. It's unhealthy 
you, you no one is responsible. I, I should have to say this, but I guess I have to say this. No one is responsible for how they're born, right? I mean, you're you're born how you're born, whatever that is. If you happen to be white or or black or Hispanic, whatever you are, who you are. You're born in the country you're born in. That's how that works. So why would you feel bad about it? But there's something worse about it. When you talk that way and bring that up, you actually make things worse. And many people think that's a good thing, but it isn't. The average person of color, whether they're black, Hispanic, Asian, Indian, Arab, insert person here, they don't actually want your sympathy. Tell what they actually want. They just want a little bit of empathy and just don't be a jerk. As a general rule, that's pretty much all they want. I mean, there's some guys who are also jerks who want extra. But as a general rule, that's all they expect. Don't be a jerk, a little bit of empathy, and we'll be okay. It's nice. You can acknowledge something. It's nice. But you have to feel bad about it. Once you do that, you actually make things worse. And Bill Maher actually did an entire 10-minute, or maybe it was 10 minutes. He did a, um, a piece on his new rules about this concept, right? Once you start saying, you know, I feel bad for being who I am, now you're basically saying, please forgive me. By doing that, you are literally being selfish. So now a person of color not only has to deal with what they have to deal with, now they have to also forgive you. For what? Did you do something bad? If you did, awesome. Say sorry for the thing you did that's bad to the person who you did it to. And hopefully that person will forgive you, I hope, for your sake, if you've done something bad to that person. Go ahead. But why in the world would you be doing it generally? Why would you be feeling bad for who you are? It's not healthy for you. It's awkward for us. And it's not good for our relationship. Nobody should be feeling bad because of who they are. Now, if you've done something bad, obviously, no worries. I got it. You've you done something bad. That's because you did something bad. Then feel bad and fix it. I got it. Say sorry. But because the fact that you were born, why would you even imagine that? But, I, but people do. Now, when I, I'll go to one more piece if I could. People are often looking at, well, wait a minute, Larry. There are systematic issues, two sides of this, systematic issues that have created horrible racism, that have created a uh, terrible uh, situation for people of color. That's true. Yes. And the other side says, come on now. It's been 200 years since slavery. How long are we going to deal with this, right? Got two of those sides. Both of those sides are accurate. Both, both of those things are true. But there's something I'm going to talk about specifically in the black community that most people don't get. And the first thing is, yes, slavery was, what, 150 or so some odd years ago? Ended? Yep. True. But slavery wasn't the worst thing that happened to us, believe it or not. It's going to sound crazy, but it's true. The worst thing that happened to us was the apartheid afterwards. That was the worst thing that happened to us. It was the Jim Crow laws and the apartheid and the segregation that happened after that was even worse. Because as terrible as it might sound, when you are enslaved, your expectations are much lower. You're enslaved. So the vast majority of people who are enslaved, enslaved regardless of the situation, whether that's now or earlier, you thought, okay, that's it. I'm a slave. That's how it works. But once you're free, you have an expectation of, good, now I'm equal. Now I'm like the rest. Now I can make this happen. Now I can be an American. And all of a sudden, that was crushed. That was crushed. For those of you who don't know the black experience as much, there's something that you may or may not realize. 
you know, American slavery was a very unique institution. Most of the world, whenever you were enslaved, you were enslaved for a reason, meaning your, your town lost a battle, your group of people were in debt or insert thing here, something happened, and that was the reason for your enslavement. And when you were enslaved, you were still that person. For example, if you were an enslaved Sumerian, you were still Sumerian. If you were an enslaved Jew, you were still Jewish. If you were enslaved Babylonian, you were still Babylonian. Whatever you were, you were still that thing. You didn't lose your culture. You just became enslaved. And in most cases, your children weren't slaves. Why? Your children didn't do anything bad. Your children, actually, they were often free, and they could actually buy their parents' freedom and such, right? That could happen often. And in most parts of the world, slavery wasn't a permanent thing. It was part of the individual who had the problem, but their children and their culture still existed and went on. That didn't happen in America. In America, when Africans came to America, when my family, my parents came to America, their culture was removed. They weren't still African. Those days were over. Language gone, culture gone, name gone, completely gone. They weren't able to remain that. Not just that, when their children were born, their children were slaves. They were slaves because they were black. They weren't slaves because they had done something wrong. Not that it's any better, but I'm just saying that was different from our culture, Pat, in the past. In the past, you had to lose a war or be in debt or do something to, to deserve slavery in someone's eyes. In this one, eh, you're black, you're a slave. That's it. You're born. That's how it works. That's a different world. And you might say, well, so what, Larry? Again, that's 100 years ago. If you're not black, think about something very interesting. Your last name. Your family name. You look at your family name. If you're not black, the odds are that means something to you. It probably means where your friends came, um, your family came from. It may mean your ethnic background. It may mean your religion. It could be many different things for you. What if you're black and you're an ancestor of slaves? If you're black and not an ancestor of slaves, this doesn't count, right? If you're, if you're black from Africa, different. But if you're black and you're an ancestor of slaves, the odds of your last name is either a name that people chose when they were freed, like Freeman or Washington or Lincoln or white or something like that, which many uh, former slaves took to try to you know, announce that they were free and they were like white people, so they became white or freemen or named after one of the presidents or Lincoln or Washington, very common thing that people did back then. Or it's the name of their slave masters. Imagine the name you have now, name of your slave masters. Some people don't know that's one of the reasons why Malcolm X was Malcolm X, right? He accepted Malcolm as his name because his mother gave him that name. And he said, that is my name. My mother gave me that name. That is my name. But his last name, he said, that's the name of his uh, slave masters. That's his slave name. That's not really his name. He didn't know what it was. It was unknown. Therefore, it was an X. As in mathematics, X is the unknown, and that's why he became Malcolm X. It's a common issue that we deal with here in America that is no place else, which also makes it hard to understand that as a general rule, right, the African-American is the only group of people on the planet who don't have a homeland. And people tell me all the time, Larry, homeland's Africa. Where? Africa is a massive continent. Where's it from? What tribe are we from? Now, luckily... For now, we have 23andMe, and we have DNA tests and stuff like that. And I've done mine, and I happen to know that my African ancestors come from the Hausa tribe. I happen to know that. But many black people don't know that. They have no idea where their ancestors come from. It's a whole different issue. It changes and makes things different. It's a very different issue, which is why you find so many people having 
that concern, why you have that, that still that break that happens now. So slavery's done, and now we start Jim Crow. Segregation that lasts for another 100 years, give or take, and ends in theory with civil rights. Civil rights era pops up. I shouldn't say pops up. Civil rights era have been happening for, for decades prior to the 60s, but now we have TV that makes it stronger, and, 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 and now it's, it's, it's working, and we get the civil rights laws. And what happens next? The worst thing to affect the black community in, since apartheid, the war on drugs. The war on drugs was literally an answer. Our worst, and, and, and if you're not black, you, sh- you should still hate this, whether you're black or not. The war on drugs, gun control, all these things were meant to affect race in America. That was the goal, right? The war on drugs literally, and again, if you think I'm making this up and do your own homework, the war on drugs was made to attack blacks and Puerto Ricans. That was the entire goal. Nixon actually said that out loud. You can go on YouTube right now and check it out. And it's in the tapes he said, he actually said that, his words. And boy, did it work. Boy, did it work. If you look at any way of any indication whatsoever of the black family in America from, say, the 1920s or so, which probably one of the height, probably the height of racism probably in America since, since slavery, it was probably the 20s. Every indicator, the black family is going up. Income, education, marriage, everything is going up. Not massively, but everything is going up right through civil rights. Then war on drugs, equal, down. The war on drugs destroyed the black family. Trashed it. There's no tomorrow. Metzeliar, why do you care? Why do you care about this now? It's 30 years ago that started happening. 30 years, whatever. Here's the reason why. Now, literally now, there's an opioid crisis. Now it's a crisis. Yeah, it's been a crisis for 30 years. But now it's a crisis. Why? Because now white people are dealing with it. Yeah, I know that sounds horrible, but it's true. 30 years ago, crack was destroying the, the black community like meth is destroying the white community now. And what was the answer for the government? Just say no. That was the answer. Or mandatory minimums. Or three strikes and you're out. And that was by Democrats and Republicans. Everybody was saying the exact same thing. The answer was lock them up. Now the answer is, well, you're an addict, so it's a medical problem. What about the 30 years of black fathers not in the family? What about that? You can understand how someone can still feel like there's still a racial issue here. That when the black family was being destroyed in the 80s, it was just say no, mandatory minimums, three strikes route rules. But now that the white community is being trashed, now it's, it's a disease. It's a health issue. It's a health concern. Now it's a crisis. Then it wasn't. You can imagine how people feel. You could think about it. Am I asking you to feel sorry again? No, I'm asking you to simply have some empathy. Go, yep, I get it. I see how that works. I could see how you could think that way. I could see how you could be upset about that. I could see it. Well, let me go the opposite side now. What about someone who's black? Shouldn't I be angry? Shouldn't I shake my fist and be angry? I could, and many people are. 
I was literally in – I was being interviewed by someone. I think they were from NBC. This is why I was running for governor. And we were in a car, and she was telling me about – she was saying, well, Larry, you know, you, you know, many of the people who you're talking to now, some of them, they're gun owners and they're militia members. And I said, yeah, I said, they're Americans and New Yorkers, and some people want to have guns and want to be members of militias. Okay, all good. No worries. We're all New Yorkers. We're all Americans. Life is good. She didn't like that. She's like, no, you know, these militias, some of them, you know, they're white supremacists. I said, they're all white supremacists. That's true. Absolutely. White nationalists exist. Absolutely. I said, but not every militia is that and every person in a militia is that way. But I'm sure there are some. Yeah. She goes, isn't that a problem? Don't you want to, don't you want to, you know, avoid them? And I said, why? Why would I do that? If someone feels that way, why would I want to reinforce that bias? If someone feels that way, why would I want to reinforce that separation? Why would I want to reinforce that? I would hope I wouldn't. I would hope I wouldn't want to reinforce it at all. I would hope instead I'd be trying to get together with those people, chat with them, make a connection with them. I said I, I, I take it as a burden. So I told her, I think that's a burden. The burden of the other, right? If you're the other, you have a hurdle to get over because you're the outsider. You're the other. And she said, that's not fair. And I said, you're right. It isn't. But it's healthy. It isn't fair. But it's healthy. My father taught me something. He said, when you're in an elevator, and I still do it to this day, people who know me, when you're in an elevator, always be very polite to everyone who comes in the elevator. He taught me that as a kid. He said, whenever you're in an elevator, whenever someone comes in, be very polite. And he taught me this in the 70s because he knew that as a black man in the elevator, that could be a problem. People could not like that. They could feel awkward and weird. So I'm extra polite. And people think, wow, that's horrible. Why would you? It's not fair. It's not fair. That's true. It's also not helpful. And it's not healthy. And I should instead simply be nice. Except that many ways, sometimes I am the other. And sometimes you are the other. It doesn't matter what your race is or what your group is or what your ethnic background is. Sometimes you're the other. And when you're the other, there is a burden the other has. You can tell me that it's unfair. You'd be right. You can tell me you shouldn't do it. You'd be right. And it's still the right answer. Life isn't fair. We are often the other. And we have to act Accordingly, it's important that we understand that sometimes we will be the other. And that's what race is really about. It's about being the other. Do you want to join the program? Tell me about your story about you being the other. You can. It is grossly simple. Just get in the phone right now. 573-427-5463. Um, hold on. Let's see if I can grab a couple of uh, questions. Let's see if I can find some here. I-, I hope I'm not being too crazy with you guys. I know that some of you are probably feeling a bit awkward <laughs> in this situation because um, uh, race can be very awkward. But um, le- let me let me keep going if I could. All right. This isn't just about black and white. Now, I spent the first half hour of the show talking heavily about black and white because obviously that's the, the world that I live in mostly because of this. But it also works in other situations also. You know, what happens when I, rem- I remember there was a, there, there was a, a group of uh, – a business organization I was a member of m- many years ago. 
And one of the meetings, there were probably 25 people there, give or take an area. Out of the 25 people, probably 22 happened to be Jewish. This was not a Jewish event. It, wasn't a, it was not promoted as a Jewish event. It wasn't purposely a Jewish event. It happened to be the massive amount of people who showed up at this event happened to be Jewish. So there were about 22 out of 25, give or take, were Jewish. I'm not Jewish. There were a couple of the guys who weren't Jewish there. No guys and gals. Wasn't, I say I'm using guys generically. Some guys and gals there. Some of them, uh, some of the, uh, about two or three of them weren't Jewish. The vast majority were Jewish. And I found that we were kind of in a corner by ourselves, like the non-Jewish guys, right, kind of talking. And so I stepped up to kind of pull us in and just kind of have a conversation. And people who were there were speaking in a way that in, could easily make non-Jewish people feel uncomfortable. They were telling Jewish jokes, things like, I'm too Jewish to do that. Things like that, right? Um, yeah, well, I'm, you know, but that's this joke, huh? You know, the first Jew to do this. And they were telling jokes like that. That's fine if you're Jewish. Tell all the Jewish jokes you want. Get it. But what happens when you're not Jewish, right? What the, imagine the reverse. Imagine if you're a white guy and you walk into a group of black guys and they're all telling black jokes. Boy, that feels weird, right? So that kind of thing happens. It can be anything. But I do this actually in my training. I talk about the idea of... What if, and I do this joke, I say, you know, okay, I'm in, in, in today's world, I'm Irish. Right now, I'm Irish. I'm not Irish. But for the sake of argument, I'm Irish. And I tell an Irish joke to another guy who's also Irish. And we're friends. How does that guy think? He thinks, oh, probably a fun joke. Ha, ha, ha. We both love Irish culture. We move on. But what happens if I'm not Irish? That person gets upset. Same joke. What's the difference? There's an assumption of disrespect that comes up and happens when you're, when you're the other. That's how it works. It's completely unfair and still human and true. And there's a burden that you have whenever you're the other. If you want to, you can be righteous. It's the same idea of people who, 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 are, who, who, who say, well, black people use the N-word. Yeah, they do. Just like Jewish people can tell Jewish jokes to each other and just like Irish people can tell Irish jokes to each other. Remember the... Uh, Remember the Seinfeld episode from the 90s when there was that guy? I, f- I forgot who it was. I think it was the actor who was in Breaking Bad, Brett Bad. I think it was that actor who was playing someone who wanted to be a comedian and tell Jewish jokes. If you remember the episode. So he wasn't Jewish. So he converted to Judaism so that he could tell Jewish jokes and be a Jewish comedian. Right? That was his, that's why he wanted to convert. Obviously, it's a joke. Uh-huh, I get it. But the concept's very true. He knew that if he was no longer the other, that he would be able to the jokes and people would, in, in theory, I don't know if this case specifically, but in theory, he would be okay. In theory, he could actually do it. This is a burden that I talk about often. I think we want to bring this up. We want to deal with that burden if you are the other. As unfair as it is, if we do that, we're going to have a better society. We're going to have better conversations. We're going to be able to talk to each other and kind of feel better about who we are. Let me move on to the piece if I could. You'll find a lot of people now talking, particularly on the Democratic uh, side, about reparations. The reparations uh, conversation kind of went away. People just stopped talking about it. And then one of the reasons why people stopped talking about it is, well, there's no real good answer. They thought it was at least, right? They thought it wasn't that good. So (laughs) 
let me let me go back. Am I against reparations in general? No, and we shouldn't be. If the government creates a wrong, it shouldn't be a bad idea to right the wrong, right? We've done it in the past with, with Native Americans. Didn't work very well for them, but we did it. We tried it. We did it with Japanese for internment camps. We've done it in the past. It's not necessarily a bad thing in theory, but there is an issue. People are saying things like, I want my check. Write him a check. Write him a check. Write him a check. If you look at what reparation was supposed to be or the concepts that he talked about after the Civil War, it wasn't a check. Some of you may have heard that saying, I want my 40 acres and a mule, right? Where did that come from? The concept of 40 acres and a mule was a brilliant concept. The concept was 40 acres would come from wealthy plantation owners in the South who had exploited slave labor so that those people would physically, you know, pay the price for slave labor. A mule so people could work the land. You can now create, you can now create property. You could now create a legacy for your family, all those things. Not necessarily a bad idea. If you wanted to sell it, you could to get money. If you want to sell parts of it, you could. Great, right? If people want to work on it, you could. Whatever. Good idea. Love the concept. That, of course, those of you who know the history, fell apart when Johnson became the president, trashed everything. It was a disaster. It didn't work. So now we go forward 150 years. And you have many people still saying, I want my 40 acres and a mule. But they want it in the form of a check. Many people will be upset when I say this but I am 100% against writing a check. Why am I against writing a check? Two reasons why. Number one, for those people who are ancestors of slaves, what we have lost over the course of decades, over the course of, over the course of, of generations, is not money, it's wealth. It is the culture of ownership. It is the ability to give things to our family, our friend, to support each other, to have businesses and land and property and goods and all of those things that create wealth. That's what we've lost, not money. I want to create an environment of wealth and ownership, and writing a check won't do that. Now, how do I know that? Oh, my God, Larry, how do you know that? I'll tell you how I know that. Lottery winners. It's a good lottery winners. Over 50% of all people who win the lottery get a big check, or 50% are worse off in five years. About a third go bankrupt. So if you win the lottery, the odds are you'll be worse off in five years. The odds are you'll be worse off if you win the lottery. Why in the hell would I want to give all my brothers and sisters all of a sudden lottery? I will literally have just crushed my community. That's what I want to do? No. It's a bad idea. In fact, Dave Chappelle actually did a joke about this reparations. If you remember, he did a joke about this, and, and he did a little skit. And there's a guy who's uh, driving a truck, and it's a full truck, and he's honking a horn. And a woman says, what are you doing? He goes, I got a truck full of cigarettes. I'm rich. Beep, beep. He does that, right? He's joking, right? But that comment was based upon something he was worried about also. You can't just throw money at people. It isn't just black people. It's people. Lottery winners are black and white and Hispanic and everything else. And across the board, they're screwed once they get this huge chunk of cash. It doesn't help. It makes things worse. Does that mean I am not for reparations? It doesn't mean that. It means I'm not for a check. 
if you really want to make things right, if you really make things right, you have two problems. Problem number one, how do you make things right from 150 years ago? Big problem. Problem number two, how do you punish people who had nothing to do with slavery? Right? It was very easy in 1865. Literally, the slave owners were right there. Yep, easy to punish them. They were right there. Get them. Got it. No worries. Makes sense. We're clear. No one alive today owns slaves. Now, of course, you might say, well, Larry, a lot of people today benefited from that. Yes, but it's not their fault. You can't blame them because their parents or grandparents did stuff. It's not fair. Not just that. There are a bunch of people who are white who are struggling. A lot of people who are white who are struggling. They aren't making a whole bunch of money. A lot of them are struggling. Some, of course, are making lots of money and some aren't. I've met many people who are white who aren't doing well. And they don't feel like white privilege is helping them at all. It might be. Who knows? I don't know their individual backgrounds. But, but you can't just decide, I'm going to punish all white people. It doesn't work. So what can you do? It should be about property and business and company and ownership. If you want to make reparations work, I don't have a problem with that. But here's how you have to do it. You've got to make it to where, one, you know how to decide which people are descendants of slaves. And with mass immigration that we've had in a long time, not every person who's black is, is, is actually a, a descendant of slaves. So you've got to figure that out. But we can do it. We've done it with Native Americans. We have rules on Native Americans on, on how, what percentage they are, what tribe they've come from. We find those same rules. We come up with rules similar to that. You are or are not a descendant of slaves. Here's how it works. You get X, Y, or Z because of this and because of that. However that works. Easy day can be done. Take some time, but can be done. Once you have that, you have to then make it a time limit. You've got to say, is it going to be one generation or two? Now, often people say, but Larry, you've got to make this happen until things work. You've got to make it happen. You've got to keep this going. If you keep this going, you will create a series of second-class citizens. We see it already. The more you make a, a, a protected class permanent, the more you make that protected class a second class of citizens. I don't want that. This should be a temporary fix that tries to make things better. So what do we do? We do something like, and this is an example. If you own a business in the United States and that business is 51% uh, descendant of slave owner or more, zero taxes. Done. None. Why would I do something like that? Why would I do something like that? One, I'm encouraging people to own businesses. That's what I want. But two, I'm also encouraging people who are not white to go into business with people who are and people who are white to go into business with people who are black. I want to encourage that. Because if it's 51% or more owned, what will happen? There'll be white people who go, this is brilliant. I don't want to pay taxes. Let me find my black friend and put my business with me. Yes. It will encourage us to get together. It will help others. They will want this to happen. Absolutely. It's not a bad idea at all. Do it owning property too. You own property? Lower or no property taxes. Same idea. It will encourage us to work together. It will encourage this. And you do it for a certain amount of time. 22 years as an example. I don't know what the right number would be. But it's X number of years. Giving people the opportunity, descendants of slaves, the opportunity to gain ownership, to gain a wealth culture, to understand bigger and deeper businesses. Now, I say, Larry, how could you make this up? It's already happening in New York City now. We have something called, if I, if I get it right, MWBE business, minority and women owned business and enterprises. That's what it's called, if I got the acronym correct. What's happening? You have the city now buying from those types of organizations who are, who, who are officially that way. 
And you have people who are literally saying, my God, I want a city contract. So I'm going to literally bring people of color into or women into my business, give them ownership so that I can get these these cool uh, uh, contracts. You might say, Larry, that's terrible. Oh, my God, that you're giving contracts. The contracts are going away anyway. I know they are. And the libertarians may be angry because governments are spending money. I got it. But this is not about government in my case. In my case, it's just generic. So people would be able to compete better and faster without those tax, without those tax issues. Lower rents without the tax issues, right? Lower fees without the tax issues. Something like that. You could, you could even, you know, waive intellectual property issues for a certain time or give longer intellectual property pieces. This is the way you want to, whatever you want to do for reparations, you want to make it so that it encourages a black, or I should say, uh, uh, descendant of slaves, culture of ownership, of wealth, not just being rich, of wealth, being able to pass down what they have to their children, to their nieces and nephews, their brothers and sisters, to grow in that regard, to have ownership. You do that, you're not directly punishing anybody. You are given an advantage for 20 some odd years, you are. But so what? We've done worse, a whole lot worse. And not just that, it also allows others, non-descendants of slaves, to also grow along with them. So it means people get together, work together, and we can lift people up. This is a, a common sense way of dealing with reparations. All right, I hope that was clear, and that's, a, that's a, kind of a tough one for people to deal with. Um, I'm going to grab a phone call if I can. I'm going to go over to Texas. And I'm going to deal with uh, Clarence. Clarence, how are you? Hey, Larry, how's it going? What's going on, brother? Talk to me. Uh, so uh, you're talking about, uh, like, race relations, right? Yep. Okay. Okay, so I have a, I do have a question that I, I would like for you to help guide me through. Um, so besides race hustlers like, you know, Al Sharpton and all the, you know, has-beens, um, I've realized that a lot of the biggest problems regarding race relations are black people that view themselves as victims of whatever circumstances that they're in and uh, and, and in my opinion, uh, and at least from like my uh, past and current, uh, they are the most racist people that I've ever met. And 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 I'm black, and 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 it breaks my heart. So um, so how uh, do we get them to stop thinking like this? Because uh, they're they're in a constant state of of victimhood or, or, or like victim mentality and, and they're trying to fight racism with racism, you know? I, I, no, no. Yeah. I, look, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I have not found that um, – I have not found the most racist people to be black. I, I have not found that. Have I found black racism? Of course. And look, you and I both yeah. know there's racism within the black community, right? There's no. you're lighter than me. You're darker than yes. me. There's – there's you come from if and some of you may not know this if you come from Africa meaning that you are an African immigrant or even if you're Jamaican sometimes I mean, West Indian depends upon where you're from you will look at American born blacks very differently yes in fact often look down upon them and that's within the black mm. community you will find so you're absolutely correct there absolutely is racism within the black community and in and, and a personal note my mother was white she was from 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 Germany. And when my father died when I was a kid, her side of the family – I mean his side of the family abandoned us, just walked away mm. from us. Literally, my, my mom was on her own and I was on my own 
at 12 years old, just gone. They walked away from us immediately. They were like, oh, to hell with her. Yeah. They walked away from us. So there absolutely is racism on uh, in, in the black community also. But I've never found a vitriol. I've never found a violence. I've never found that in the black community. I found the idea of kind of you know pushing people away, ostracizing, um, insulting sometimes. I've seen that. But it's very rare that I've seen the violence that I've seen uh-huh. in, in the white community. Right. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not at all saying my community is bad. I'm not saying I'm saying. But if you're looking at racism, I just I haven't seen yeah. that that amount of vitriol, that amount of violence um, in the black community, even yeah. though I have seen racism. Absolutely. But to your point, yeah. you've got to realize something. You do find a lot of black people. I'm Look, I've been there, too, who are angry, who say the system never solves anything for us. I mean, yeah. do you know how disappointed I was? In someone like Bill Clinton, who talked such a good game about race, who talked like he was going to do so much, and then he put so many black men in prison, who mm-hmm. talked like he was – I mean, of, of course you feel betrayed. Remember he talked about it? And If you're older, I don't know how old you are. But if you remember Bill Clinton, he was the first black president. Remember that? He was had a saxophone, yeah. and he was playing it, uh-huh. right? All that stuff. And yeah. then he walked in and he did and he jumped on board with the just say no and the mandatory minimums. And he put more yeah. of my people in prison than anybody else. I mean, you, you got to I'm just trying to be be fair here. You got to see yeah. where you're coming from. If you're in a black community now, you have a very serious situation. Number one, the government is putting you in prison and the government's your biggest employer. I mean, employs yeah. the most of us. So it's both mm-hmm. feeding you and crushing you. Where are you going to go? What are you going to do? You have a Republican Party now that doesn't care about black people, not even with rhetoric. And you have a Democratic Party who has rhetoric for black people but doesn't do anything for it. Neither party does anything for our community at all. The Democrats talk like they're going to. They won't. The Republicans just ignore us because there's another problem. Look at the black community. We vote in lockstep Democrat. Democrats ignore us. Because we're going to vote for them anyway. And Republicans ignore us because yeah. we're not going to vote for them. So what happens? Yeah. We're sitting here in, in, a, in a, a horrible place to where people aren't caring either way. People are acting like, you know, what difference does it make? So they lash out and they're angry. And when someone like Al Sharpton is saying, these guys are wrong, I have an answer. Yeah, you get behind them. You do. Because yeah. where else are you going to go? So my answer to yeah. you is, we have to give our community a better answer. We have to give our community a better way to go. We have to start talking. And I did a, I did a, um, uh, a show a couple of weeks ago, about three weeks ago, on, on ownership, on poverty. The idea of giving people yeah. the idea of ownership. And I brought up just now the idea of reparations, which reparations should not yeah. be about a check. It should be about changing culture. It should be mm-hmm. about the idea that why, we need to have more people of color. More people in the hood who own parts of the hood. If you remember, there was a, a Netflix special um, by Killer Mike. Killer Mike, for those of you who don't know, was a black rapper out of Atlanta. Yeah. So, so you don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you know, but some people don't know that, right? So he oh. talked <laughs> about the idea. He was joking, but he meant it. But there was a, a seriousness to it. He said there was an advantage to segregation. And at least segregation, there were black-owned businesses because you couldn't go to the white businesses. 
So there had to be yeah. a black shoemaker. There had to be a black grocery store owner. There had to be a black hotel owner. There had to be a black everything yeah. because you couldn't go to the white ones. Now, I'm not in any way, yeah. shape, or form saying segregation was the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> but I am saying that there was a culture of ownership there. And once mm. you changed, and you know, the, this, the civil rights movement, while there were many amazing things about it, the one horrible thing about it was is it made government the savior and not the community, the savior. And the one thing that Malcolm Actually, X... Actually, you know, you make a good point, yeah. Yes, you know, the, what Malcolm X was talking about was who cares about the government, fix your own community. Buy black. Remember Malcolm X? Buy black. Be black. Care about black. Care about your own community. Do that. And the funny yeah. thing is, if you look at other communities, what about race, right? Look at the Asia, uh, Chinese community. Look at the Korean community here yeah. in New York City. Look at the Jewish yeah. community. They tend to, to have ownership. They buy things. They sell things. They're together. They, 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 do, they, they have that culture. They bring it with them. The black community has yeah. not been good at that at all. Just has not been good yeah. at that at all. We've been very bad at that. And some yeah. of that is obviously our community port. But the number one reason, I'll say it, and it's going to sound horrible, is the lack of the father in the family. And the number one reason yeah. why we have that is the war on drugs? Yeah. Number one reason. Now, now you know. I, I actually, I've, I've heard people say that it was the uh, the war on poverty that that removed the black father from the home. You know, that was like the main reason. Like, I, I didn't realize it was a uh, war on drugs. Yeah, too. well, the war on poverty helped. Don't get me wrong; that helped uh, because again, it made the government the savior and not the community the savior. Right? I want the community to be the yeah. savior, not not the government to be the savior. Right? So, yes, it helped. But how in the world, as a black man eating at a job, when you've got a prison record, when they're doing mass mm. arrests, right? There was a story mm. years ago. Uh, this had to be in the maybe early 90s. So a brother up, uptown, Harlem area, uh, they're coming by and doing mass arrests. They're arresting tons of people. They're arresting everybody, right? Arrest, as they came by, and they would just you know, arrest the entire corner. And this guy happened to be at the store like getting milk or something, right? This guy was actually yeah. he he was actually um, applying to work at a place like Morgan Stanley or something like that. I don't remember. I'm I'm making that up. I don't remember exactly who it was. Something, something like that. I'll say Lehman Brothers because they're not around anymore. So I'll say he was trying to work for Lehman Brothers, whatever that company was. <laughs> and he had an arrest record now. So now he didn't get the job. And he expressed, "I just got arrested, man. I was in the wrong place, wrong time. That's it." He actually sued mm. them, and years later was able to get a bunch of money. But while he got a bunch of money. His career was ruined. Mm. This kind of thing happens with the war on drugs. Your career gets ruined. You are now behind the, the eight ball. You are behind people who, 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 you know, they're up there rocking and rolling at 22. You can't get started until you're 24. You find that happening again yeah. and again and again. The war on drugs is something else. It actually gets more people in the black community to look for jobs that don't have as much value. Look at people you know of color. I know people in my community, many of them. What do they do? They go for jobs like, um, you know, social worker and jobs like, you know, uh, they want to be in legal aid. Why? That's what they see. Mm. They don't see lots of entrepreneurs. Imagine if you're the, the war on poverty, why this hurts so much is imagine, imagine if you would. You look at your family. And when I grew up in the Bronx, I already had that happening where there were people who mother and father never went to war, never went to war, never went to war. Mother and father never went to work. They didn't yeah. know what that was. Now, if those guys didn't go to work, that's two generations of people not seeing 
anyone go to work. And you know what's happening? You're <clears throat> finding that now in white communities. That was true in a black <clears throat> community 10, 20 years ago, where you saw that from the war on poverty. But now because of the war on drugs, now you're also seeing that in the white communities now, where everyone's staying home. No one's going to work. Well, then where's the entrepreneurial spirit? The only entrepreneurial spirit is in the war on drugs. <laughs> There's literally a, 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 a um, charity. They take people who are convicts from the war on drugs and make them work with MBAs to have them start businesses. Why? These people know how to run businesses. They simply know how to run illegal businesses. So they teach them how to run legal businesses and they invest in them. So the war on, yeah. on poverty began it. The war on drugs was the end. That was just the end for the black community. Mm. So I hear yeah. what you're saying. I haven't found that same vitriol in the black community at all. I found racism, but I think there's racism in, in, in all people. I don't think that's you know oh. to anyone. Everyone has it. But I haven't found the same vitriol that you found. I haven't found it at least. Yeah, well, well, well context. Like I'm, I'm only 26, so like I'm, I'm dealing with a lot of like um, uh, millennials right now, and, and I'm pretty sure you're aware of how vocal they are yep. uh, about their opinions. So, so like, and and amongst the black millennials that I've been around, I mean, like, well, most of them. No, I'm sorry, not most. Some of them. Uh, the louder it's, ones. It's, it's very, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yes. it's very, it's very hateful, you know, towards anyone who's not black. You know, it's you know, it's just sad. Well, remember something else. People who are aggressive usually are afraid. Hmm. Right. The root of of aggression is usually fear. They may be afraid that nothing's going to change, which I get because they've been right. That's been the case for 30 years, at least, if not more. So they're afraid nothing's going to change. Yeah. They're afraid of it. But the yeah. reality of it is yeah. for, for the average person in this country, it is getting better. It is getting fairer. The problem is for some of them, yes. they feel it's not fast enough. What is it uh, Martin Luther King said? Um, justice delayed is, is justice denied. Did I, did I get his quote yeah. right? I think that's what it was. Right. Justice delayed is justice denied. The sad part is – Culture doesn't care. Culture moves slowly. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Culture yeah. moves slowly. And I can be mad all I want. It doesn't help. Now, is, is education, like, uh, a, a big deal also? Because, uh, like, I, I also used to think this way, like, when I was, you know, like, 18, 19 mm-hmm. or whatever. And then uh, I recently, like, maybe, like, shit, uh, like a month ago, I yeah. finally got uh, the uh, black rednecks and white liberals, and I started reading that, and I realized, pardon the pun here, but I, I realized how uh, all this, all this division and all the issues that you see on the news, and that's like been um, bought by our community and stuff like that. It's, it's not as black and white as uh, as people think. No, no, I completely agree. Nuanced. I completely yeah. agree. That it's not black and white at all. You know, the the, the problem is when it comes to voting. The black community is very monolithic. But when it comes to the actual black community, it is not monolithic at all. You know that. It is not yeah. at all. Someone who's raised yeah. in the inner city versus someone raised out in the country, different. Someone who's raised in the church versus someone who's raised not in the church, different. They're different. Mm-hmm. Someone whose family comes from Jamaica or West Indies versus someone who's been who comes from, from South Carolina, North Carolina, different. Versus in New, in New York particularly, a lot of people come directly from Nigeria or Africa, different. You're, you're absolutely yeah. correct. They are not monolithic at all. We, we're not monolithic. You and I aren't monolithic at all, right? But yeah. But when it comes to voting, as a group, we are. As a group, we are. We have hmm. to change that. And how do we do that? By giving people another option. And I'm trying to show there's another way. And the way is accepting the unfairness as unfair, 
and saying, I'm going to take on the burden of trying to make things better. I'm going to open myself up and talk about intent. And here's the biggest thing. When someone says something that's racist or or makes me angry or insults me, we have to simply ask what the intent is. There are people who want to hurt. There are bad people and there are bad racists. But the average person in this country is not a racist. The average person is not. There are people who are 100%. The average person is not. They say something that's bad or weird. It's not because they're racist. I told you when I was a kid, I asked about the Holocaust. I was like, hey, well, how long are you guys going to wait for to talk about the Holocaust, you, you Jewish people? Yeah, that's because I was a dumb, ignorant kid. Not because I was anti-Jewish. Yeah. right? J- Jewish people before, Jewish old men were teaching me how to play chess. I loved them. That's how I learned how to play chess yeah. in, the, in, the, in the Bronx. I was <laughs> ignorant. There was, I wasn't trying to be mean, but that was a terrible thing for me to say. But again, I was a kid, yeah. and I was ignorant. There are many times people yeah. say things, they don't get it. And I learned that, believe it or not, when I was in the Marine Corps. When I was in the Marine Corps, I was 17 years old. I went to boot camp with people who had never seen anybody who wasn't like them. And the stuff that came out of our mouths, oh, my God, was horrible. But we still sure. love each other, and we literally would have died for each other. Literally, we would have died for each other. Most of it yeah. was simply out of ignorance, and the intent wasn't to be mean. In fact, some people, when they're having epiphanies, and you find this, people who are starting to go, huh, because the first step, and it's going to sound horrible, and people hate this when I say it, but the first step in breaking someone's racism for whatever that race is, is just getting to go to one person and going, oh, well, maybe you're one of the good ones. And wow, mm-hmm. does that sound terrible? I know it does. But that literally is the first step. Someone's got to believe that there are good ones before they can believe they're all not bad. Yeah. They've got to make that step in their own journey to that, that place. They have to make that step. We have to be able to accept we can ma- help them make that step. And if they make that step, we can have a better place. And I, I bring up Daryl Davis all the time. That man's a hero. He goes out there and talks to people about that and finds, yes, you know what? I can get them to think I'm one of the good ones. And before you know it, they go, you know what? I was wrong. An example I'll give you, I don't know if you've ever seen this. If you watch any if you watch any specials on, you know, going to the the redneck white racist guy on uh, some documentary, right? Whatever they do. Yeah. Whoever they send there, if they send a Muslim, if they send a Jewish guy, if they send a black, whoever they send, whoever they send and they start talking to those people, whatever that whatever group it is, say it's a Muslim woman, and one of them was a Muslim woman. She was talking to a bunch of people who were supposedly they 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 were um white nationalists. All of a sudden, the guys, they were like, well, I guess you Muslims aren't that bad. They still hated blacks and Jews. They still hated blacks and Jews. Still hated them. Why? They hadn't met me. Yeah. They, they met her. And all of a sudden, she was okay. We have to be prepared to have those conversations. I, I kept you on the phone forever. Brother, I want to say thank you so much, Clarence, for, uh, for chatting. Did I answer your question at least? Oh, absolutely, Larry. Thanks for talking to me, man. Awesome. Have a good day. You too. All right. Um, again, if you want to be part of the program... No worries, 573-427-5463. We're going to go to Georgia now. We were in Texas. Now we're heading over to Georgia. Going to talk to Eric from Georgia. Eric, how are you? Eric, are you there? Larry, how you doing, man? How are you, sir? I'm doing good. I don't know if you guys, how much you guys have touched on this, but... I really want everybody to take the time and think. 
if you've ever thought about starting a business, now's the time. There's, there's nothing that cures economic disparity more than entrepreneurialism. Nothing. And, you know, what gave me a little bit of a leg up, you know, uh, along my way in life is, uh, you know, at one, one, one day my mom told me, you know, go to the county and uh, get an assumed name certificate. And then take that, go to the bank, you know, open an account in the business name and start offering services. It's, it's literally that simple. And I feel like a lot of people have this big barrier. They feel like they need this, they need that, they need all these things. And really, you just need to, to find something that you enjoy. Well, uh, and, th- th- hold on. Let, let, me, let me touch this if I could. This is a point that I actually brought up about three weeks ago. And again, I brought up earlier today. The idea that ownership is a critical aspect in dealing with any type of poverty or problem or issue or concern, I completely agree with you, right? We want to make sure Absolutely. that, but ownership, it is, you said it isn't that, that, that hard. It's super hard when you have no examples of this. And that's the problem in most poor communities, not immigrant communities, but poor communities. There's no example of this. Go to a poor area, whether that's in the inner city or even if it's in, you know, uh, Appalachia, wherever it might be. And and what do you see as the as most of the small businesses? Most of them are franchises or owned by people who are not part of that community, right? You go into a black community, and a bunch of the places are owned by you know Koreans or Indians or Absolutely. insert thing here, right? You go out to Appalachia, they're all franchised, owned by people who actually live in a city, but then hire the local manager locally. Sometimes, sometimes even the manager comes from someplace outside the area. It's a common issue where they don't even see entrepreneurship around them. If you don't have an environment of ownership and entrepreneurism, then, my friend, you are asking a lot. You're asking a lot of, uh, of an individual who may not even have seen their family you know, go off and go to work except in an illegal trade, in a black market some way, right? In drugs or, yeah. or prostitution or gang violence or something like that. You have that kind of environment. If you've ever seen – have you ever seen the TV show, the HBO TV show, The Wire? I haven't. That's okay. There's a part in The Wire which is very interesting. They talk about they're dealing with children, kids in school, right? And they talk about you know the idea of math and all these things, and the kids don't know anything. And all of a sudden, they're talking about how do you deal with this if you're on the corner slinging drugs? And the kids know they can talk about slinging drugs on the corner. Why? That's what these kids knew. That was their future. In fact, one of the families in the TV show was a mom who was trying to get her kid to be good on slinging drugs because her husband, who was also slinging drugs, was now in prison and couldn't support the family anymore. So she wants the son to go out and now begin to support the family. But she's not saying go open up a franchise McDonald's. She's not saying start a consulting business. She's not saying go mow lawns. She's saying go sell drugs because that's what she knows. So when you have an environment like that, then you are asking a lot, which is why I'm saying we have to change that environment. And the example you find is in immigrant communities, right? When I was a kid, yeah. remember, I grew up in the 70s. So it was right after the war on poverty began and right in the beginning also the war on drugs. They both came around the same time. One was came about 10 years after, give or take, right? So this yeah. all began together. When I was still a kid in the Bronx – I remember how people made money. My father got us out of the ghetto because he was a part-time DJ. 
Yeah, entrepreneur. His job, part-time DJ. He was out there DJing on the weekends, making money. This is 70s. It was disco, right? He's doing that, making money to, to get us out. There used to be guys, for some reason, were always Puerto Rican or Dominican, who'd be banging out dents in cars. Back in those days, they made cars out of metal. So they would bang yeah. out dents in cars and making money. We used to have girls on the stoop braiding hair for money. And again, back yeah. in those days, there was no Uber. So, and cabs wouldn't come to my neighborhood. So we had gypsy cabs. Some guy would paint one door another color, and they'd all go and, you know, gypsy cabs. You pay him five bucks, take us wherever we're going, whatever the case may be. So that entrepreneurial spirit was very strong. In many it places, it's no longer. Your point is a valid point. Think, what do you think killed it, Larry? What, what do you think killed the conversation in, 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 in those communities about becoming an entrepreneur? You know, I mean, we saw so much entrepreneurialism in those communities not too long ago. What killed it? I will give you three things that killed it. Number one thing that killed it is the war on poverty. I was talking about before. The war on poverty made the government the savior, not the community the savior. And the community should be the savior. This is one of the reasons why if you look in other communities other than black and white poor communities, you will often find a huge entrepreneurial spirit because they've decided the community is going to save them. The community is their savior. Jewish communities, uh, Korean communities, Chinese communities, very often the community is the savior. So the war on poverty got rid of the community as a savior, made the government a savior. Remember, government's not there to help you. Government is there to service you, to ensure you are always being serviced and to not pull you out of anything, but to constantly keep you in that cycle of poverty. That's the job. It is a very good job of it. It's services. That's number one. Number two is over licensing and regulation. Remember, when I was a kid, you could braid hair for free. You could open up your own hair braiding stop, stop, shop. Now, particularly in New York State, you need a, you need a license. It costs you $20,000. Well, if you're poor, that's too much. You're never going to do it. You're never going to do it. Right? If it wasn't for Uber, the only way you could have a, 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 be a taxi cab driver was to buy a medallion, which costs at least six figures. So you have to mortgage a home or have multiple families to drive a cab. That's how bad it is to drive a cab. All these licensing and, 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 and things like that, that actually makes it impossible. You add on top of that regulation that people can never figure out, they can't do anything. So what do they do? They do stuff that's illegal, the black market. The black market now puts all those people in prison. When those people in prison, guess what? They can never get out of the black market. Once you're in prison, you are now doomed to stay in the black market forever. Which, what does that do? Put you back in prison again. War on drugs, illegal this, illegal that, illegal this. These three things crushed it. Note all three of those, government, not community. Did I answer your question? You're right, Larry. It is, it is, it is asking a lot. I, I commend you for, uh, for taking on this in, issue, and hopefully we can do something to, to restock the, uh, the conversation about entrepreneurialism and the in all communities, uh, once again. Hey, thanks for your time, Larry. Of I'll course, my friend. Later. Have a great day. All right. all right. So, yeah, I think you hear this often. You hear the idea that, well, how are we going to make this happen? We'll have a government plan, a government program, a government this, a government that. It's common, and I get it. Look, if you're in a situation to where things haven't worked for you, I think you look for whatever savior idea might be there for you. I, I, I get that.
I'm not mad about that at all. If you notice the one thing that, that I'm that I try not to be is angry. Because anger isn't helpful. It just isn't. The more angry you are, the more people don't want to talk. And the more people don't want to talk, the less things are gonna work out for us all. That that's the number one thing. So, all right. Um, see if I can grab a question here. This is uh, I think it's from YouTube. I have friends from different races who have innocently asked a racial question, but they were vilified and bullied to a point of deleting their social media accounts. How can we learn anything if we are too afraid to ask the question? Um, Cancel culture is real. Yes, let me bring up two things. One of the reasons why I took this on is for exactly that reason. Exactly that reason. I have a friend who lives upstate, and he says, I have, he told me, he goes, I have two friends who answer, I, I think he's religious, I believe, or maybe he's anti-religious, one of the two. He says, I have two friends who will often answer, they live in New York City, who answer my Jewish questions. He said that to me. That's amazing. That means he can ask questions about Judaism to somebody without them being offended. They can say, yes, let me tell you about my religion. They can chat about it and talk about it. It's important that we do this. The second you begin to vilify, we have a problem. It shuts things down. Something to remember, this is an important piece that we have to understand in America. And that is, I mean, it's throughout the world, but heavily in America. Whenever someone is looked upon in any way as the other, we in America will always look at that as less than. So even bringing up the fact that something is the other is an assumption that it's bad. And I actually do this with some of my, to my classes when I'm teaching. I teach emotional intelligence, things of that sort. I do that in my professional life. I, I don't always just do this. And I'll say, okay, imagine for a minute that there are three people over there. All three happen to be men. And you ask me, you say, hey, which one is John? And in this case, they all work for the city and they all have a city uniform on. So it's difficult for me to, to, to distinguish which guy is which. So what I say to you is, oh, John, he's a Filipino guy. Now, me saying he's a Filipino guy, is that by default a bad thing? Sadly, yes, it is. Because someone is going to think, oh, why did you have to even bring it up? And that's exactly the, the questioner's point. I can't even bring it up. If I bring it up, I am by default evil or bad or racist or insert evil term of the day, insensitive, whatever the case may be. Now, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Perhaps I shouldn't have. I, I don't know what the situation is. But I talked earlier about this. If you're the other and you're the person who feels offended or angry or upset by this, and we do feel this, I get it. What you have to be able to do is something very simple. Just ask the intent. Just say, hey, I'm curious as to why you said Filipino. That's it. Ask that question. And now I can respond. I can either go, oh, you know what? I didn't mean that. I said it because they're all wearing uniforms. I know John. I happen to know he's from the Philippines. You know what? I probably shouldn't have said that, but here's the issue. Whatever. Or whatever. You can talk about it. That conversation now becomes, ah, I get it, a conversation. But if as soon as I say that, you go, how dare you? What do you, you hate Asian people? Oh, my God. And you do that thing or whatever. At that point, immediately I get upset. I immediately get defensive, and now I dig in. And now I dig in and go, I'm not racist, you people. I start doing that, and it's bad, 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 bad. But what if I'm a bad guy? What if I don't like Filipino people for some reason? By the way, I love Filipino people. 
Just saying. But what if I didn't? What if I was a bad guy? I didn't like them for some reason, whatever my racist issue was. If you said, well, Larry, why'd you say that? I would show my true colors. I would go, oh, now they're special now too, or whatever. I would do that thing that you would go, ah, yeah, he's a bad guy. Just by asking intent, you will allow the person who's not trying to be racist, who's just ignorant or made an error or said something or didn't realize they were making an error even. They just might not, or maybe they're just curious. Who knows? Asking intent allows for conversation to continue. Attacking makes things worse. But boy, do you feel righteous when you attack. You feel super righteous when you attack. See, I'm righteous. I attacked the bad guy. Here's thing to remember. We live together. Attacking me is not helpful. Yelling at me is not helpful. Making me feel like a racist is not helpful. But having a conversation with me so I can see that maybe this could offend somebody. Maybe I should have a chat about it. Maybe you can answer some of my questions. Or as I talked earlier with Clarence, maybe I am that racist guy. Maybe I'm that bad guy who thinks everybody of this group is bad. But when you have a conversation with me, that just cracks that facade. It cracks the idea of every one of this group is bad to go, oh, maybe they're not. Well, Larry, we don't have time for that. You don't have time not for that. That is the only way we make change. There's no magical way. Are you going to put people in camps and kill people who are racist? Some of you want that. That's a terrible idea. It makes you as bad as them and never goes away. Never goes away. We got to fight Nazis here all the time. Got to fight Nazis. Nazis are bad. You're you're right. Nazis are bad. No one's going to argue that. Well, some people would, but regular people argue that. So we got to fight them. No, we have to convert them. Yes, I said it. We have to convert them. Daryl Davis is the answer. Not fighting in the streets. That's not the answer. We fought. The, Germans fought Nazis in the streets in the 30s. And what they get? Nazi state. We fought Nazis. We dropped bombs on them. 1945, we dropped tons of bombs. We fought them in a war. We invaded their country. We crushed their nation. And what do we still have? Nazis. They're still here. We still got them. They didn't go away. We've been fighting Nazis for 70 some odd years. They're still here. They haven't gone away. The fighting doesn't work. You've got to convert them. Yeah, that's hard. But we spent 70 years bombing them and fighting them and trying to stop them. It hasn't worked. Let's try my way for a couple years. Let's try conversation for a couple years. How about that? Remember after Charlottesville, the first Charlottesville? Everybody was mad about all the the, the white nationalists who showed up. And then the, uh, the governor, McAuliffe, that guy said something completely stupid and made things worse. He said, my answer for you Nazis is Nazis go home. Why was that stupid? Why was that stupid? Where are they going to go? They're coming back home to be your neighbor. Their kids are going to school with your kids. These aren't Russian communists or German Nazis or insert thing here. They're They're Americans. Go home so they can still be Nazis. Wow, that was dumb. Don't go home. Stay right here. Talk to me. I can't convert you if I can't talk to you. And the more we shut down, the worse it is. This show that I've been doing now for, what, 10 weeks, give or take, something like that? I forgot how long I've been doing it. Whatever it is, has been about exactly that, talking to people. You've seen me have people on the show who are open socialists, and I have a conversation with them. I take any phone call. doesn't matter. I talk about race. A couple weeks talk about gender. Talk about poverty. Talk about anything because I can't convert you 
if I can't talk to you. You're not going to believe me or think I'm right in any way, shape, or form if I can't consistently talk to you. Shutting down conversation is terrible. It doesn't work. It just makes things worse. If some guy or gal is a bad guy or a bad gal, that's going to come out anyway. And the savviest people know something. It's okay to be right later. You don't have to be right right now. I don't have to win every argument. I don't have to win every debate. I have to have enough conversations to have someone who still wants to talk to me. If this has value to you, then here's what I want you to do. I want you to support this show. Yes, I haven't asked for money yet the entire show. I've been trying to give you some good content. I'm asking now. If you like what I'm saying, if you're happy you can call in, if you're happy you can have that conversation, then do me a favor. Head on over to patreon.com slash sharp way and support us. This stuff costs money. It costs time. I'm here for two hours every Monday. Not with my family and friends. Well, my friends, I'm with you. Not with my family, but I'm here with you guys talking this, this stuff, trying to get more people to see this, putting this out there, bringing people on, and just having you give me a call and, and, and chat things up. If this is valuable to you, making a change, then support us. $5, $15, 28 whatever you can do per month. Help us out. This costs money to put this thing together. This isn't free. This cool thing right here costs money too. Of course it does. And these cool shirts, they cost money too. All cost money. Help us out. Patreon.com slash Sharpway. So I hope that was a, a, a good answer to that question. I know a lot of people are, are asking um, about you know how do we have that conversation. All right. A comment. Um, guy says, uh, I went to an event, a whiskey slash car event. My husband was catering. I was the only woman, so I was the other. Yeah, I'll give you an interesting other also when it comes to that. I had a friend of mine who was an interior designer. And in New York City, if you know, a lot of male, a lot of interior designers are either women or gay men. It's a huge chunk of the designer population. Not all, obviously, but a huge chunk are either women or gay men. This guy's a straight guy. He actually is the other when he goes to places because he is very often the only straight guy in the room. There's either women or gay men. So in that case, the straight white guy is the other. It does happen. The other is a tough place to be. But it, you can be angry at it and shake your fist at it and talk about how unfair it is. But do you think they're going to invite you back? Do you think you're going to be able to have the connection? Now, I know what people are going to say. Well, it's not fair. How dare they not accept me as the other? How dare they not do that? Well, they're not going to. Eventually, if you just are normal, they're going to bring you in. How do I know this? I'll tell you. Segregation. Segregation in the, in the South uh, after the Civil War, there were laws for segregation. Laws. Think about that. Laws. Why? If we would naturally hate each other and naturally segregate, why would you have to have a law? No need, right? Obviously, blacks and whites wouldn't talk to each other. Obviously, would hate each other. No need for a law. Who cares? No, they knew that eventually they would integrate anyway. How do I know that? Look at the South now. Many parts of the South of you that live there now or you go through and look at it, lots of integration now. Why? The laws are gone. That's what happens naturally. The funny part is, look at New York City. 
They haven't been segregation laws in forever. One of the most segregated cities in the country. We are segregated. School system, where we live, neighborhoods, we're segregated. No laws. Right? We're breaking up a bit. We're getting better. We work together, which is nice. So we want to make sure that if we just allow people to be that not accepting other as an insult, but accepting other as a challenge. That's an issue. Accepting other as a challenge. I know that's hard. I get it. I know it feels unfair. I get it. But if enough of us are able to do that and have those conversations and not shut people down, we can actually change this country. We can change the environment that we're in. Cancel culture is real. And this is the idea that if you make one error, you have to go away. And let me be very clear with people who think cancel culture is a good idea. For those who don't know what that means, cancel culture means the second that someone says something I don't like or is not PC in my world of PC, whatever that is, I get all my buddies together. We then attack them and make sure they get canceled. And we think, that'll teach them. Doesn't teach anybody anything. It just makes them hate you. It makes them hate you more. And the backlash is more segregation. And the backlash is, is more, uh, more segments, more, more factions. How do we know that? Look at all of the now media that is somehow behind some type of wall, some type of paywall, some type of subscription wall. How many times do we have that? Why? It's the way to be safe. What are we doing? Making sure you can't see it because you're going to be the one who gets upset. But here's the worst part. What we actually do is we just make the weak ones fall behind that. If you happen to watch, there are two recent um, specials on Netflix, one by Dave Chappelle and one by Bill Burr. These two comedic specials attacked uh, cancel culture. There's no tomorrow. Hammered it. How bad they are. How dumb they are. The SJWs uh, hammer them all day long. Why? They're already powerful, wealthy, and rich. They don't care. You can't touch them anymore. You're not going to be able to cancel their stuff. The power doesn't work on them. So what you wind up doing with cancel culture is empowering the powerful and crushing the little guy, which is the norm. Because the little guy can't stand up to cancel culture. The little guy's trying to move up the ladder. Cancel culture comes up, cancels their stuff. They're finished. The big guy goes, I don't care. Shut up. So the, the response to cancel culture from the powerful is, shut up, go away, I don't care, goodbye. So the people you're trying to actually change aren't changed. They don't care. And the people who are just coming up, they get crushed. So in your attempt to fix the system, what do you do? You crush the little guy. What does the little guy do? He falls behind paywall. He falls behind a subscription wall. He goes behind that so you can't touch him. So what happens for you? All you get stuck with is the big guys yelling at you all day, telling you to go to hell. It's not working, which makes you angrier, which the cycle continues. Cancel culture is real, and it's really stupid. Let me say it again. Cancel culture is real, and it's really stupid. All it does is make things worse. I'm going to tell you something that's crazy. It's insane. If people are saying things you don't like, ignore them. I know, nutty, right? Insane. Just ignore them. There's so 
much media out there? Are you telling me you can't find anything else to watch except the one guy who makes you angry? Or perhaps you want to be angry. Let me give you something that you may not understand about many people who are upset about big issues. And this is not just the left people like punching the left on this. This is the right also. The left and the right both do this. In an attempt to ignore their own personal internal problems, people will very often look to something bigger and express their desire. I can't fix my own stuff because these big issues matter. On the right, it's things like, you, we, I can't fix my own thing because immigration is destroying the nation. So I care even though immigration in this specific case doesn't affect me at all. I'm going to act like it does and I'm going to take on this massive thing and I'm going to go protest and go crazy over this when I really should be fixing my own house because I'm a disaster. The left is it too. Racism or immigration is a big issue or whatever. This is a horrible issue. And they go crazy and they protest, do all these things when they probably should be fixing their own house. When they probably should be looking internally and fixing their own self first. For those of you who saw when I ran for governor, when there were people who left my campaign for better jobs, for better opportunities, I always said, go, go and become better, stronger, faster on your own. When people wanted my help afterwards, they wanted reference letters. I gave all of them. I went out of my way to go do these things. Why? Because if they fix their own house and become stronger individually, then as a group, we're all stronger. If they all become stronger individually, they have more resilience. They have more value. They have more everything. But when I want to spend my time talking about the big issue that actually means nothing, I'm not looking internally. I'm not worrying about my own house. I'm not paying attention to what's happening in my own world. Instead, I can feel righteous, right? I can't make sure my marriage is working because this huge thing is happening. What's wrong with you? Global warming or insert big thing here. Not that any of these things aren't important. Not that immigration, global warming, none of these things aren't important. Of course, they're all important. These are all important issues. The question is, do I want to get outside and shake my fist at what I think is horrible because a college is, has a guy speaking who I disagree with when maybe I realize I can't really pay my bills or I can't even pass my classes if I'm, an, if I'm a student or my marriage is falling apart or my kids are, are unhappy or my kids are on drugs and all I do is shake my fist at some college campus because it has a guy or gal that I hate coming on. I think you see a lot of that. People who don't want to deal with their own stuff, dealing with someone else's stuff. This is the almost the caretaker's issue, right? A person is a caretaker of someone else, always taking care of someone else, never taking care of themselves, and then all of a sudden they collapse and they fall apart. I know all of you either are that or have seen someone who does that. Takes care of everybody else but themselves. This is a similar mindset. I think why some people get so upset about it and jump up and down and cancel culture. Let's cancel stuff. Something to realize. It is a whole lot easier to attack somebody and feel righteous than to talk to somebody and actually think. Change is hard. Yelling is easy. Conversation's hard. Yelling is easy. What do people do? Let's yell at them. I feel good. I feel like I've done something. And here's the best part of it all. We've been yelling and screaming, 
passing laws, passing, you know, all, uh, you know, making these changes, and it's not better. Think about that. We're still unhappy. How many laws do we have to pass? How many protests do we have to have? That's changing anything. The rich are still richer. The poor are still poorer. We still have problems with families. We still have problems with all kinds of things. We still have all kinds of problems and issues and concerns. But let's go out and protest again. Did it work last time? Has it worked in the past 40 years? Protest, protest, yell, scream, get mad, watch TV, yell at the TV. I have an idea. Why don't us individually do our best to go out and fix things? I'm serious. Why don't we go out and try to fix things? It's not a bad idea. What's the worst that can happen? We've been trying to use government for at least 50 years, if not more, at least, to fix these problems we're talking about today. Hasn't worked. Try my way. How about trying to have a conversation and cancel culture, and when someone asks you a question that makes you upset, you don't have to shut them down. When they try to shut you down, ask their intent. If any of you have seen me talk to people who get mad at me or people who yell at me, whether that's online or in person, and some of you have seen me do all of it, some of you have seen me do my campaign, people get mad and say horrible things at me, whatever, whatever. One thing I try to never do, I try. I don't always do it. I'm still human, and I'm not perfect. But I try my best to not get angry. I try my best to have a conversation. But I'm still human. I have snapped, and I have been unhappy. It does happen. I'm just, I'm just a person. How about we all try that? I think that will make things a whole lot better. Questioning is good. Conversation is good. Now, there's a thing that is, is happening by default, though. I think you're seeing it when it comes to race. You're seeing it in TV. You're seeing it in, in, in movies. You're seeing it in commercials, advertisement. And that is the idea of, of people who are either biracial or couples that are of mixed race. You see that of families that are of mixed race. It's interesting. Now, sometimes, clearly, that's just done to virtual signal, right? Hey, look, we're a company that cares about stuff. So let me put uh, you know, a, a mixed race couple here because you know we're woke. That does happen. But the fact that that's a thing is a good thing. The fact that, that, that this is being projected is a good thing. Got to remember something. In, I think it was my lifetime. In, uh, Star, Star Trek was, I think it was 1968 or 69. The Star Trek TV s- series showed the first interracial uh, kiss on network TV. I was alive in 69. Yeah, I know. I'm an old man. I was alive in 69. Yes. Right? So in my lifetime, it was a big deal to show an interracial kiss on TV. That was a big deal. Now you see that kind of thing all over the place, all the time. That's a good thing. The problem is we might want to sometimes think that it's – I don't want you to think that because it's interracial, that makes it good. No, you can have some really horrible interracial marriages like any other thing else. People are still humans. But the idea that it's now okay is a good thing. There are signs that we can see that are very good. You see it in TV commercials, movies, all types of things. People who are of different races mixed together, doing different things together. And even if they are, you'll find that often, right? Uh, the the uh, the comedy uh, thing where there's, you know, Three, three white guys and one black guy, or three black guys and one white guy, whatever the case may be. The person 
doesn't have to become like the other, right? So the, the, the one white friend doesn't always have to all of a sudden talk stereotypical black or become Eminem. It doesn't become that guy. He can be a regular white guy talking whatever language, you, the way he wants to speak, whatever it is. And it's acceptable. Like we get it. Okay, that's, that's the token white friend in that movie, right? Or there's the three white guys talking black guy. He doesn't have to all talk like all the white guys. He can talk differently. He can maybe it's a different area. It's fine. You can do that. But there's something else you find. Look in media. You will also find people who don't speak in a stereotypical way. You can find the black guy who doesn't speak in a stereotypical black way or the white guy who doesn't speak in a stereotypical white way. You can find that also, which is awesome, right? And gals too. You can find that. It's awesome. That kind of makes us a good thing. It shows that we are getting better. Here's the issue. And this goes back to, I think, Clarence's issue. We're getting better, which is good. So let's not be jerks about it. Let's accept that we're getting better. Keep pushing as we should, right? As we should. But don't be so damn angry because it isn't perfect yet. First off, it'll never be perfect, number one. It was, it's never going to be perfect no matter what we do. That's number one. But we don't have to move it tomorrow to whatever level of perfect there is. And I get the idea. It's not fair. It should be perfect. I know. Culture doesn't move that fast. It just doesn't. So we're going to have to accept that we're moving faster, which is great, and getting better, which is awesome. But you're still going to find problems. You're still going to find issues when it comes to race. Number one is having conversation. I'll bring another, another one if you could. I brought up a lot of black and white. But let me bring up Asian. Let me bring up Hispanic. Let me bring up you know, Middle Eastern, Muslim, Jewish. Bring up all those. They're all people who at one point can be looked upon as the other. And the other is very easy to be demonized. Very easy. If you're Hispanic or Latino, Latina, I'm not sure what the what, what a better phrase is. If you're if if you're Latino, Latina, or is it Latinx? Is that how it works? I don't know what it is right now. Whatever whatever the whatever the appropriate phrase is, I don't mean to be uh, flippant. I just don't know the phrase. I'll, I'll say Latino because it's just I'll, I'll say Hispanic. How about that? If you're Hispanic, there's a there's a an, an assumption that you are pro immigration. That you are open borders and that's who you are and that's how you should be because your people are the ones who came over the border and all those types of things. It's always true. We shouldn't think that everyone who's Hispanic is monolithic either. I'm sure there are many Hispanics who are all about massive immigration and many who don't want it at all in every combination, every mix. We also shouldn't assume that everyone who's Hispanic is the same. Right? Even here in New York, there's a difference between Puerto Ricans and Dominicans. Right? They're different. Right? They both speak Spanish, and many of them live in the Bronx. I'm joking, right? But yes, many do. But still, there's a difference, right? If you're in uh, Florida, they think you're Cuban. Well, notice Mexicans in Florida too, right? It's, it's all mixed. Puerto Ricans in Florida, they're all different. So this is something else you have to be concerned about. We don't want to make anybody monolithic. I remember if you – some of you may remember this. Going back to the 80s and 90s, particularly the 90s, they were really bad. They were trying to create what they, what they called – if I remember what they called diversity training. Diversity training, for those of you who were around, old like me, who were around the 80s and 90s when they were doing that kind of training, it was horrible. It was a training that basically reinforced stereotypes. The goal was you were supposed to know what everyone's culture was by putting them in cultural boxes and then acting accordingly. So literally, this is part of the training. Well, you know, if they're Asian, they're probably going to like tea. I know you're cringing when I say that. 
I'm just telling you what it was. That was the way it was. What I'm asking us to realize is we don't have to know everybody's culture. And I'm saying the opposite. I don't want to make it monolithic. I don't want you to think, well, he's black, so he thinks this, or she's Hispanic, so she thinks that. I want you to instead to be exactly the opposite. I want you just to ask and treat them as you would treat anybody else. And if you treat them incorrectly, and this is something they don't like, let them tell you they don't like it, and don't be angry. So if it is true in this specific case that this guy who happens to be Asian happens to like tea, and you offer him coffee, and he goes, I don't like coffee, I like tea, go, great, let me get you some tea. Don't go, whoa, that guy likes tea because he's Asian. No, lots of people like tea. You don't have to be Asian and like tea. It's irrelevant, right? So don't think that way. Just talk. I know it sounds silly. I get it. But we do it all the time. We make assumptions. Have because of marketing. If you ever watch, have you ever watched uh, McDonald's commercials, particularly about 10, 15 years ago, on a, on a show where the, the audience is primarily black? I mean, it, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing. This is the bad now. It isn't anywhere near as bad now. But it was like, it was, the assumption was everyone who's black goes to McDonald's is, is, is rapping and, and singing soul songs on their way to get a burger. How insulting is that? But that was the norm. People expected it. It's how it was. Now, when they had, his, uh, the, when they had the, the, the commercials in Spanish, they weren't wearing sombreros or dancing. They just were speaking Spanish. That was it. They were speaking Spanish, which is fine. If you want to have a Spanish-speaking commercial, it's fine. Right? Have whatever language you want to have in your commercial. But they weren't being, they weren't doing that. It was different. It was a whole different issue. I don't want us to be that. We've moved away from that. And that's what I'm, I'm happy about. I guess I want to go to the next step, which is the idea I, I touched on, which is the, the mixing issue, right? It's also biracial. I'm biracial, which was a big deal in the 60s. Some of you may not know my, my background, but I was given up for adoption um, in, in the 60s because my mother, who uh, my, my birth mother was, was white. Actually, it's going to sound odd. My birth mother was white. And I didn't know her ethnic background. I had no idea what ethnic background was because back then they sealed, they still seal the records. They seal the records and you can't see who it is. And that's how it works. And my father was black and was in the Navy. That's all I know about that. He was in the Navy. And um, she was upset. She thought her family wouldn't accept me being biracial. So she got pregnant. She gave me up for adoption. She didn't believe in abortion. So she gave me up for adoption. Back in those days, and this is New York State, by the way. I was born in Manhattan, New York State, just the 60s, my lifetime. Um, they could not give me up for adoption. They wouldn't unless the couple was also biracial or black. That's how it was. I know New York, this isn't like the deep South or something that you assume all oh, these people from the South are so racist or whatever you would think. This was New York. That's how that worked. Luckily, I happened to get adopted by a family who was uh, a guy who was black and my, and my, my, my adopted mother who was German. Um, he was in the army, met her in Germany when he was stationed in the army and came over here. Later on, I did a, uh, it's crazy. I didn't know, it's a little bit off topic, but I think you'll find it interesting. I didn't know I was adopted. My parents lied to me for 30 years. I thought my adopted parents were my birth parents for 30 years. So forever, I thought that was, this is what it was. It was my parents. All of a sudden, I found out this wasn't. So I thought, oh my God, am I actually half German or not? So I actually did a couple of DNA tests. I don't trust one. I did several DNA tests, and it came back. I happened to actually be German, so it's kind of odd. So my birth mother was actually German, even, and my adopted mother was also German. Kind of odd. Anyway, that was a big deal back then. 
Now, not so much. You find a lot of people who are of mixed race, a lot of people who are biracial or even multiracial, not even biracial, multiracial, um, all over the place. And that kind of cultural mix or acceptance is very valuable for us. It helps to break stereotypes. It helps to break barriers. And the people who are biracial are often able to, in many ways, cross over both. They're able to kind of cross both and to understand a little bit of, of both sides of the equation and to sometimes bridge the gap. And I think we're finding more and more of that, which is great. Doesn't mean that people shouldn't stay within their own race. Please fall in love with whomever you, you fall in love with, obviously. But it, there's an advantage that once you open it up, and culturally, we didn't really do that. Now we do. I mean, think about the was it Spike Lee movie, uh, Jungle Fever, 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Might have been early 90s, but I think it was 80s. Um, I mean, this was about a black and white relationship in New York City, and it was, you know, horrible, tough, difficult. And I think that's still, that was a problem in the 80s still even. And again, in New York, I, I'm not saying where we think it's going to, oh, New York is most progressive that you talk about. No, we have our racial issues here too. It's more polite, I think, in general when it comes to racism here, but still, we still have it. Now, I think it's going away. More and more and more, you find people crossing, mixing, not caring, and this becomes the, the mix that we, the, the, the bridge over those gaps. When we have those bridges, things just get better. I think it is better. So if you like what I'm saying, again, let me ask one more time if I could. Do me a favor. Support this show. Head on over to patreon.com slash sharpway. Give what you can give. $5, $15, $28, whatever the case may be. Give whatever you can give to make sure that we can keep this show going. It does matter. Can be part of the program? Absolutely. No worries. You can do it. It's not hard. I'm here for you. You just pick up the phone. Give us a buzz. 573-427-5673. Six, three. All right. The last thing I think I kind of want to cover um, in this in this uh, uh, show is the idea of what it means or what we decide it means to be black or to be white. Now I know I did not spend much time on Hispanic or Asian or Muslim. I know I didn't. People didn't call in caring about it. I apologize if that makes some of you upset. But what I know best when it comes to race is those two. So that's why I speak mostly about that. I did warn you up front that is the most common thing that I deal with in that case. Let me talk about what black and talk about white, both. In the case of being black, as I mentioned earlier, the black slavery in America was special in that it got rid of the African culture. So now when blacks are free, where is their culture? It's been stripped. So what did the culture become? For many black Americans, not all obviously, but many black Americans, specifically those who are descendants of slaves, black culture became poor Southern culture because that's what so many blacks were after the Civil, after the Civil War, right? Many blacks in the, in the country were poor Southern blacks. So that became a, a major part of who we are as a culture. I still deal with it now. We all do. If, you, if you're black, you deal with it now. There is part of your culture. It's part of who you are. So what, what became black culture was a poor culture in, when it comes to America. It became part of that. And many people who, who, who are black had to kind of walk out of that. And as we walk out of that, what do we get? 
well, now you're acting white. Why are you acting white? You mean by speaking in a certain way or going to college or doing this type of thing, that's acting white? That's nowhere near as true now as it was when I was a kid, right? But that's heavily when I was a kid. Why are you acting white, right? That was a, that was a, that was a thing. It still is today a little bit, but it was much worse then. And the concept was, if you, if you didn't like you know, a certain type of music, if you didn't speak with a certain type of accent, then you weren't black enough or you were acting white. But look at the reverse. Is the same true of white people? Did someone say, well, you don't have a, I don't know, you don't have a cowboy hat on. Why aren't you acting white? You should have a cowboy hat on. Of course not. It's not how that works. It's a, it's a different environment, different world. Totally different world. But now we go to the next level. You have black people now talking about white. And now white people too. Some of things like white privilege, what it is to be white. If you're a relatively wealthy white person, then you'd be like, yes, that's white culture. But what about when you're not? What about when you're the regular everyday white guy who is busting their rump to get the job done, do whatever they're trying to do. You're a guy or a gal whose family's been torn apart by family court because you're divorced. You've lost your job because of what's happened in the economy or someone in your family is part of the opioid crisis, which many of us have. You don't feel like that's a privilege at all. You don't feel like that's white culture is being rich and using your credit card to buy big things. You don't think that. You think, man, I'm struggling like everybody else. There's a double standard here on both sides that is slowly going away, which is good. But I want you, you, when you're thinking about what it is to be white, when you think about what it is to be black, whether you're black or white or anything else, whatever you might be, think about how you're stereotyping people. Should every person who's black be a hip-hop artist? Is that what you think? Should every person who's white be trying to become a banker? Is that what you're thinking? There's plenty of black bankers and there's plenty of white people who like hip-hop. <laughs> so those two things aren't true. But think about how you're thinking. Are you stereotyping that? Are you looking at your – when you look at yourself, are you making that happen? And if you are, not the end of the world. You aren't evil or mean or nasty. And nor is anyone else who might think that. It just might be what you think or how you act because of your own experience or their own experience. Any of those things might be true. I'm asking us to not worry about stereotyping but instead to worry about having enough emotional intelligence to just treat people like people, to have those conversations, to not fight so much. History has given us lots of baggage that we have to deal with, particularly in America, the oldest sin, slavery, but also immigration, how we crushed the Native Americans, how we attacked the Irish when they came, how we attacked the Italians when they came, putting them into the... Uh, the war on drugs back then, which was the war on alcohol, right? Helping to create, helping to create the mafia and the mob and all those things back in the uh, in the twenties and thirties. Um, how we dealt with blacks, Puerto Ricans, Hispanics here now with the war on drugs and then immigration and immigration reform, all those things. We have a lot, but we're also the most diverse country in the world. We're also, which means we have the most potential in the world. We shouldn't look. I brought this up a while ago and I bring it up again. When I was in Japan, I lived in Japan for many years. And when I was in Japan, I learned a lot 
about what it is to be American by being in a foreign country. And if any of you have traveled, you know you do learn a lot about who you are by being in another environment. And when I was in Japan, people would tease me and say, hey, why do you Americans get so mad You know, when, when people burn your flag? No one burns our flag because we don't care. Wouldn't you make the news if you burned our flag? We would just go back to business. It wouldn't matter at all. And I said, one of the reasons why we get so angry is because we care about symbols. We're not united by so many other things. If you're a Japanese, it's a very homogenous society relative to America. Most people in Japan speak the same language, have the same, read the same books, go to the same schools, watch the same movies, they're most of them the same religion. So they're, they're tied by many different things culturally and things they do. They're tied together, right? To be, to be Japanese isn't, isn't necessarily just a nationality. It is, but there are many other things that tie them together to being Japanese. Americans don't have that. Different schools, different religions, different books, different languages, different backgrounds, different everything, different families, different foods, different everything, different movies, media, all different. We are bound by our ideas. We are bound by our symbols. It matters to us. It's hard to be in a society as diverse as ours. There are going to be racial pressures. But the more we dig in, the more we accept cancel culture, the more we accept the other is bad, the more we, the more we become angry because we're the other, the more we don't accept the burden of being the other, the more we don't do that, the harder it is for all of us. Think about it. When someone comes to America as an immigrant, they are by default the other. How it works. My wife's an immigrant. My mother's an immigrant or was an immigrant. She passed away. She was an immigrant. And neither of them said, that's it. I'm not changing. Now, to be too fair, my mother never became an American citizen. She was very proud of being German, and she stayed German until she died. She died still a German citizen. But she spoke English. She learned how America worked, and she functioned well in her adopted you know, place to live. She decided to live here, and she died here. And she accepted the American way of life. She didn't be, she did, she still was proud of her German citizenship and her ancestry, and she stayed a German citizen her entire life. In fact, she actually was born a West German citizen. So, um, so, so uh, she, she stayed in Germany her entire life. However, she accepted that she was in America. She was the other, and she took on that burden and tried to become better and meld in to our melting pot, which that goes for everybody and every pot in every area. Sometimes you're the other. Does that mean I have to surrender who I am? Of course not. Does that mean that I have to you know, give up aspects of who I am? Of course not. It just means accept that if you do things that are different, people are going to look differently at you because you're the other. When my mother spoke German, when she was talking to her friends on the phone and people who didn't speak German looked at her, they were like, oh, that's not English. Does that mean they didn't like her? Does that mean they were angry at her? No, it was different. They weren't. They, they didn't see that. It was different. It was odd. It was different. Difference, not bad. And if you are the other, don't be angry. If someone says something that makes you angry, it's okay. Conversation is the right answer. Talking back and forth is our only answer. If we don't do that, we can't make this a better nation. And I know I've used Daryl Davis like 14 times. I'll use him again. I can't convert you if I can't talk to you. This entire talk tonight was all about one thing, conversation. Back and forth, conversation. If we don't have that, we don't have anything. I know it feels good to yell at people, 
call them racist, call them Nazis, call them bad guys, call them SJW, social justice warriors, call them whatever. I know it's easy to call them that. It makes you feel righteous doing it. I know you shake your fist at them. Yeah. But remember, they're our neighbors. They go to school with us. Their kids go to school with our kids. They work with us. They vote. They're our representatives. They are fellow Americans, fellow New Yorkers if you live in New York, fellow community members. Fighting them is not helpful. And I see it all the time. We'll fight them. We got to fight them. We got to fight them. Why? Are you planning to kill them all? Are you planning to put them all in a, in a cage? Are you planning to put them all in a camp? Do you think that if you just yell loud enough, they'll all change? I hope you don't think that because that never works. I'll say it again. We've been fighting Nazis for 75 years. Guess what we still have? Nazis. They haven't gone away. They're still here. You want to keep fighting them? How about use my way? How about talk to them? Not even for 75 years. Just seven years. How about that? Don't fight for 75 years. Talk for seven. How about that? I'm only asking for 10% of the time we spent fighting them. I'm asking for 10% of the time to just talk to them. Talk to the people you disagree with. Talk to the people you're angry at. And see if you can turn any of them. Now, the odds are you can't turn them all. You probably can't. No one can. But if you turn just 10% of them, that's 10% less you have to fight. I think it was Abraham Lincoln who said, I think it's him. I'm sure someone will correct me if I'm wrong. I think he said, if I turn my enemy into my friend, haven't I eliminated my enemy? Either way, you've eliminated your enemy. Whether you break them down and beat them up and kill them, whether you turn them into your friend. Either way, you've done it. Well, guys, I hope you've enjoyed the show today. It's two hours of a lot of talk about an issue that was tough. I hope it was interesting for you. Again, if you like what you were hearing, please support us. Head on over to patreon.com slash sharpway. Give what you can give. If you want to have more conversations like this, and I hope you do, and I hope you, you really enjoy it, support us whatever you can. $5, $10, $15, $28, whatever the case may be. Love to have your support. If you want to get some swag, go to sharpway.com. And of course, please, please like all the pages. Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all of them. We need as much support as we can get. I hope it was a great show. I will see you guys next week here on The Sharpway.